at helping me get to the sixth floor dorm room. And then they left with all the other parents. Bye-bye, Mom and Dad. And then we started orientation week. And uh, we had all kinds of things that went on in orientation week. But on one night in the quad, all these tables appeared. And there was a table for the football team. And there was a table for the soccer team. And there was a table for the gospel team. But you had to try out for that, too. There was a table for the orchestra. There was a table for the newspaper. And yes, we had yearbooks back then. There was a table for the yearbook. You could be on the yearbook staff. Yes, go yearbook. Um, There were all kinds of tables, but there was one table that stuck out. There was one table because it had all these students with pieces of paper doing this. Like on the side of the table, on the ground. And you know what table that was? The Citibank table. Oh, yes, you're remembering there was a Citibank table. And I went with all the other students and I filled out paperwork. And several months later, I got this. A Citibank credit card issued to me, not my parents, with a credit limit of $750. Kapow! I was now an adult. Yes. Did you know, by the way, did you know that credit card companies will actually pay colleges and universities money so that they can come onto campus and operate? We now know how much they pay because of the CARD Act passed last year by Congress. And, and here's some numbers for you, all right? Last year, the University of Colorado was paid $600,000 so that that credit card company could operate exclusively on campus. They obtained 85 new credit card accounts that year. So if you do the math, they spent $7,000 for each new account. You would think some colleges would be like, no, we are not going to take your evil money. Colleges like the University of Notre Dame, rooted in Catholicism, not Ivy League, but just so close. (laughs) Just so close. I mean, it's almost there. Okay? You can study Latin there, can't you? Yes, right. It's so close. Last year, the University of Notre Dame was paid $1.9 million by a credit card company so that they could operate exclusively on their frigid campus. Um, The biggest company, Bank of America, last year spent $62 million, and they obtained 38,610 new accounts from college students. And so if you do the math, they did much better than the company that went into the University of Colorado. They only spent $1,600 for each and every new account that they got. Um, why? Why would banks spend $1,600 just to get a stupid poor college student to sign up for a credit card? I mean, would they even have a credit limit of $1,600? See, banks know something. Banks know what happens nine times out of ten. And in order to do that, I want to talk about it, let's say, a fictionalized Andy and Christy. So I want to walk you through the life of Andy. Andy went to college. Andy went to college, and he applied for and received a credit card. Oh, just like I did. And, and Andy graduated in just four years. 
thank you very much. He was diligent. He studied at least half the time, showed up for classes at least half the time, and he graduated in four years. And when he was done, he had amassed $6,500 in credit card debt. No problem. And he's out of college now, and he's going to get a job. He also had $28,000 in student loans. But again, it was no big deal because now he's going to be a wage earner. He's going to have a real job that will pay real money, not like that Domino's thing that he did on the weekends, okay? And so he did. And despite the bleak economy, he landed a job at the University of Kentucky, and he got a salary for $31,500 a year. I know some of you from UK are going, boy, he didn't do very good at all. And some of you are thinking, what? <laughs> what department is he in? I want to transfer. <laughs> okay? But $31,500 a year, right out of college, okay? And in order to do that, Andy realized something very important. He couldn't wear flip-flops. He couldn't wear those four favorite sweatshirts from American Eagle. He had to actually have grown-up clothes. So Andy went to Macy's, what he considered to be a grown-up store. I mean, after all, when he was in there, all he saw were old people. And so he did, and he went to the men's department, and he didn't put it on his credit card, thank you very much. He opened a Macy's account. Because, so, again, he was, this is going to pay this off. It's okay. And when he was talking to his folks back home on the phone, he realized that that old beat-up Toyota 4Runner that got, you know, zero gas mileage and needed a new exhaust system anyway, that was stupid to go from Nicholasville to Lexington. I mean, that's like how many miles a day? And so mom and dad were like, yes, you should get a, you should get a fuel economy car. And so he went out and he bought a car and, and he only paid $13,000 for it. And it was financed, but again, no problem. He's got a job. He's single. He's going to pay it off. It's no big deal. And then six months later, he met Christy. Aww. And they, she was in another department at UK, and then they went out on dates. And then six months later, he had gone to Jared's. Yes. But at this point, he was starting to think. He was like, you know, those full carat rings are... A lot of money. <laughs> and there were all these zeros. I mean, it shined under the light and everything, but he, but he restrained himself. And when Andy proposed, Christy only got a half carat. But it was a beautiful diamond solitaire. It was well set in the ring. Don't worry, ladies. And Andy only spent $1,089, financed for 24 months. So two years, it would be totally paid off. And in the back of his mind, he was thinking, no big deal. When we get married, we'll get some money, and we'll, I'll probably, we'll just probably pay it off right then and there. We'll be free and clear. And sure enough, six months later after that, they were married, and they did. They got a couple of thousand dollars in wedding booty, cash, checks. I mean, isn't it crazy what people do when you get married? They just give you stuff. It's amazing. You should get married like every year. <laughs> we're getting married again. <laughs> We want you to come and bring money, okay? <laughs> and, and it worked out great. I mean, because they did. They got that money, and, and they were so savvy. When they were on their honeymoon, they used that cash. It paid for all the food. There was this snorkeling adventure. Um, they also did a few clubs. They didn't do anything that you would be ashamed of, okay? Because they were married. It's okay. But they did it some of the night scene, and, and they had gone to the Cayman Islands. I mean, come on. You only get married once, and, and how many? you're never going to go there again. Once you have kids, you're not going to travel, okay? And they knew that. And so they were like, we're going to, you know, it's our honeymoon. It's the only thing. And so they did. They went to the Cayman Islands, and they paid. They burned through all their cash. They bought some cool, you know, summer stuff there while they were there. But 
of course, the airfare in the hotel was $2,111, and that was put on Andy's card. Um, eight months after that, eight months after that, um, you know, they were talking because they had gotten a dog, and, you know, it was hard in the apartment, and they bought their first house. They did, and they were shocked at how much the banker and the realtor said that they could afford. I mean, they were just absolutely shocked, but they had no money down, so they did this thing called an arm. I know some of you are like, what is an arm? An arm is kind of like the arm of Darth Vader. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's what my dad would say. It's the arm of Darth Vader. Okay, no, it's all it means is adjustable rate mortgage. It just means your mortgage rates kind of fluctuate with the economy, and it's okay. And again, uh, no problem. Literally five years down the road, we will refinance. We'll do a traditional mortgage. This is just to help us get in the house, and that and that was their thinking. But over the next six years, um, Christy got pregnant twice. It was great. It was a boy and a girl. It was awesome. But of course, there were the trips to Lowe's. There were the trips to Toys R Us. Um, And then there were the unexpected things, like the the day the heating system went out. And it was a ball home. It was a new home. I mean, that stuff shouldn't go bad. I mean, it's not even 10 years old. They don't build anything like they used to. Come on. They don't build anything like they used to. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And and then there were other unexpected things like the, they were so lucky they got a basement and, and, and Andy had gotten a man cave and he had his system set up down there, the PlayStation 3. I mean, it was awesome. It was stupendous. And you know, with that stupid ice storm and then the water comes in and State Farm apparently does not insure for like water stuff. That's separate. You have to have like flood insurance. I mean, oh, and that was unexpected. At age 30... Andy and Christy went bankrupt. And it's not like they planned to get there, but they were literally chained to something that prevented them from going where they want to go. And I actually, I have a visual illustration today. You might need to move this stuff, Mr. Dieter. Here we go. This is awesome. Don't get bunked by my chain. All right, so here's a a big chain, and I have this tethered. You might need to move, Danita, so I don't wonk you. I, I love generations events that we don't have to call an ambulance. It, they're my favorite kind. There, there always can be an ambulance when generations is involved. So, um, um, Carrie, would you come up here for a minute and help me out? Yeah. I just, I just need you to start winding this around tightly. There you go. Just like that. One, two. All right, that's good. Now you can stop. This is awesome. All right, now, if Carrie... Yeah, he's like, keep going. If Carrie had gotten a padlock and padlocked it right here, how far can I go? Yeah, I can only go as far as the chain will let me go. And here's what I want you to see about money and indebtedness. When you are in debt, you're only as free as the chain is long. And that's what the Bible has to say. And I want to wade into this if I can. Thank God Carrie didn't lock it. That was close. Here's the thing. Andy and Christy, they never planned to go bankrupt. That wasn't when they were sitting down and talking about one day and someday. She didn't look into his eyes and go, honey, when we're 30, I want to go belly up. (laughs) And I want to do it with you. (laughs) Not anyone else. You, hon. No, they, they didn't have that conversation. Nobody ever plans. It's like nobody ever plans to get divorced. Nobody, it's just, it wasn't part of the plans. But here's the thing. Debt and freedom move in opposite directions. Debt and freedom. The more debt you have, 
the less free you are. But the less debt you have, the more freedom you get. And so the bottom line today is really simple. Get rid of debt so that you can do the things that God wants you to do with what he's put into your hands. Now, there's smart debt and dumb debt. And today I'm talking about dumb debt. The Bible doesn't, you know, like, what's smart debt and dumb debt? Smart debt is when you borrow money to buy something that increases in value. Typically, that's a home or land, okay? So you borrow money and you're paying it off, but as you're paying it off, the value of what you borrowed money for is, you know, getting bigger and bigger. Dumb debt is when you borrow money to buy something that goes down in value. Um, like a car, really. It's the moment you drive it into the street, there, tchum, there's $4,000, you should ha- there should be one of those sonic booms every time you drive off the lot. <laughs> There's that four grand. It just went away. Oh, get it quick. Okay. Um, and so, uh, uh, so there you go. I'm talking about dumb debt today, but the Bible doesn't make any such distinctions. I want to come back to the text that we were in last week and look at it through a different lens. Because last week we're in, we were in this text in, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, and... Uh, we were, we were uh, weighing through it as a means to see that, you know what, you really can't count on God. But let's look at this a little bit differently, perhaps, okay? So 2 Kings chapter 4, and it's about a woman who was in trouble with a creditor, right? And uh, this is uh, 2 Kings 4, verse 1, I'll read you. One day, the widow of one of Elisha's fellow prophets came to Elisha and cried out loud to him, My husband, who served you, is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons. So she's in trouble. Josephus, by way of reminder, tells us that this woman, this woman was the wife of Obadiah. Obadiah was the servant of King Ahab who took a hundred prophets and stored them away somewhere in secret because Queen Jezebel wanted them all executed because they were actually prophesying stuff from the Lord, which at the time was, God's going to nuke your face off. And the king and queen hated it, okay? So he... He hid them, and he apparently borrowed money so that he could pay for the food and pay to keep them out of sight, out of mind. And he died before he could repay the debt. Now, in ancient Israel, the way it worked was, if you can't pay, we come in and we take hmm, your kids. Thanks. Some of you are going, ooh. Um, I'm going to call Bank of America tonight. And <laughs> No, 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 okay? Back then, it was bad for the, somebody to come in and take your kids, okay, because that was your livelihood, and, and so she's about to lose any chance of having any kind of livelihood. And, and then the story goes on, verses 2 through 7. What can I do to help you, Elijah asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Oh, nothing except a little flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and then go into your house and, with your sons and shut the door. So she does this, she goes in, and all of a sudden oil starts pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring, and it's a miracle. And at the end... Uh, verse 7, when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and there'll be enough left over to support you and your sons. If you're in debt to the point where um, you have chest pains, if you're in debt to the point where you know you go to lie down at night and your spouse is fast asleep, but you can't because you know you're thinking and you're calculating and you're like, I don't know if I'm, you know, payday and and you're stressing, if, if you're stressed to the point that every time the phone rings, there's kind of a lurch in your heart, I want you to understand something. You're not worse off than this woman. She was about to lose everything. They were going to come and take her children away. 
And God intervened in her situation. And so there's hope for you and me. But there's a biblical principle at play. And the biblical principle is Proverbs 22. If you could put that on the board. Proverbs 22, uh, verse 7. And this is the kicker. And we've waded into this before. Just as the rich rule over the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. This proverb is talking about freedom and power. And the only people who have the freedom and power are the rich people. The rich people have the freedom and power because they're the ones lending the money. They're the ones calling the shots. There's no question in this verse who's at the top of the food chain. The rich people are. The lenders are. The borrowers, whoo, they're on the wrong end of the stick. The borrowers put themselves under that power when they borrow money. Borrowers give up their freedom. And like the rest of the book of Proverbs, this proverb is meant to show you and me that there's a connection between our actions and our consequences. Every time you and I choose to borrow money, we literally put ourselves under the power of the person or the entity we're borrowing money from. This is why I will often advise young couples when in premarital counseling do not borrow money from your parents. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And Dave Ramsey gives the same advice. You want to know why? When you're sitting there at Thanksgiving dinner, it's one thing to sit across the table from your father-in-law. It's something else entirely to sit across the table from your master. It is. The food tastes different. It just does. And so I always like to advise families, whether it's parents helping out kids or kids helping out parents, make it a gift, don't make it a loan. Because when it's a loan, this spiritual principle comes into play, master, servant. Um, and for those of you that are younger and you've borrowed money from mom and dad, you could probably go, yeah, I, that's total, I, yeah, I didn't realize it. They lent us some money and then the phone call about Christmas and our travel plans. And they brought it up and I was like, oh, crud. See, it, it comes into play. You don't want that corrupting thing, okay? So here's the thing. If you've got a lot of, if you've got a lot of, debt, lot of debt, very little amount of freedom. But if you have a little bit of debt, you have a tremendous amount of freedom. So here's some questions I want to ask in light of these uh, passages. What would you be willing to do over the next two to five years so that you could become debt-free, so that you could live like no one else five to ten years from now? What would you be willing to do? What would you be willing? And here's another question. What would you be willing to give up so that you could be financially free in that way. You know, maybe it would be cable. Maybe it would be a cell phone line. Maybe, I don't know what it would be. Maybe it would mean an extra job. I don't know. But what would you be willing to do so that 10 years from now, I mean, this is doable, isn't it? It's doable. Despite how many zeros are on that debt line, it's doable. Here's, here's the thing I don't want you to assume, though. I don't want you to assume that someday, one day, you'll just pay it off. There are people in this gym today who have a bucket load of debt, and when they were younger, when they were in college, they assumed, well, when we're 30, when we're 35, when we're 40, when we're making more. And the thing is, as life came along, there was never really more. The more just went out the window. So I don't want you to assume that it will just automatically happen. So here's your homework, okay? Here's your homework assignment. Now you can put up my little chart there. I want you to, this week, I want you to go out and list all your debts. I understand this may be painful. I understand this may be cause a Pepto-Bismol moment. But sometimes the medicine is good, and this is good medicine, all right? List all your debts, and here's a sample debt. And some of you are going, man, they're getting off 
scot-free. That's not much at all. Some of you are going, oh, I would die if I owed that much, okay? So it's all on a sliding scale at all, okay? So just list them all. Go, call your credit card companies. Call, find out from the car company. I mean, what, what exactly? Know that bottom line number. The total amount that we owe is... And remember, this is a spiritual exercise. Why would you want to do this? Because you want to be free. You want to be free to move in the ways that God wants you to move and do the things God wants you to do. And you don't want to be chained to some immovable eye bar that's wedged in concrete with sand down the concrete. That's, you can't go anywhere. All right? So here they've listed it off. I believe Dave Ramsey is right. Sometimes you'll listen to those Susie Ortman or whatever, and they're like, you know, pay the higher interest things off first. I think Dave's got it right when he says, take the smallest debt, attack it, and then when it goes away, you're like, oh, I just ate that like a tiger. I'm going after the next one. I mean, it's like fuel, okay? You start pouncing on the debts. It's an energizing thing. So go to my next slide. Here's what we done. We just organized it in order of lowest amount to highest amount. So you go after that gas card that's $400 and you pay it off. And all of a sudden, that $60 a month payment that was going to that now goes to the next item in the list. It's called a snowball because as you, the snowball goes down the mountain, guess what? It gets bigger. Just think of what that snowball would be like by the time you get to the mortgage and all that extra money is going down on the mortgage. All of a sudden, a 30-year note becomes a 10 or 12. Or I mean, think it, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, seriously, think about for a moment if you have kids, what would it be like when they're getting married or when they want to move into their first house if you just whipped out the checkbook and wrote them a check for $12,000 or gave each of them $12,000, which is the maximum amount you can give before the IRS comes in and goes, I want some, okay? What would that be like? You could just go, here, go get your house. We just want to bless you. Wouldn't that be a great feeling? What if your kids could graduate from college 100% debt-free because you had that ability and you had that extra and margin to do that? I mean, that would be amazing. And see, if you're here today and you're young and you're a teenager, I want you to know this is why America is where it is. Over the last two decades, we have predicated our economy on spending lots of money that we borrowed. <laughs> and it's craziness. And the reason that the economy is not getting better and not getting better, even though the government is printing vast quantities of money and going, here, flood the market, flood the market, is because consumption just, you know, if you don't have money, you don't got a job, you can't consume because you can't borrow anymore. Okay, the rules of engagement have changed. You know the best thing that you could do with a credit card? Here, I've got my, I have my scissors. Here's, here's, this, these came in the mail uh, with a little thing saying, we would like to give you $15,000, $15,000, no chase. I do not want you to be my master, okay? You know, they came it in the, they came in the mail, please, please. Um, I actually called Discover Card years ago, and I said, I want you to keep my limit to $1,000, why would you want to do that, sir? Because I don't want to be chained. <laughs> okay? I mean, seriously, do you have a shredder at home? This is the best thing that you could do because all of a sudden you can be free. You can snap the chain. I know you're like, what? That's crazy. Don't oh, pick it up quick. Okay? Here's some questions. What if five years from now, what if five years from now you had eliminated all of your credit card debt? What kind of freedom and margin would you have in, in your life? You could start doing things, couldn't you? I mean, you could go on trips. 
you could bless the socks off of somebody. What if 15 years from now you had your house paid off? What could you do then? I mean, you know what you could do? If you saw a need, you could be generous. If God wanted you to zip and do something, you could move right in that instant because you'd have the freedom to do so. I want to pray for you and pray for me, and then we're